You are about to listen to a message delivered by Pete Scazzaro, Senior Pastor of New Life Fellowship and founder of the Center for Emotionally Healthy Spirituality in Elmhurst, Queens, New York. For more information or resources, visit our website at newlifefellowship.org or center, the number four, ehs.org. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Please go with me to two passages, uh, Genesis chapter 42, verse 35 and 36, and then later we're going to go to Genesis 33. So go to Genesis chapter 42, verses 35 and 36. Now we're at the, uh, towards the end of a series we're doing on the life, lessons from the life of Jacob, and you look up there on the, on the PowerPoint behind you, we started out week one by just looking at the striving, rushing, manipulating Jacob and how he manipulates the birthright out of Esau in Genesis 25, and then the following week, he steals and manipulates the blessing from Esau, his twin brother, and uh, lies and dresses up like Esau and had the same title of that message. Week three, we looked at him as he flees in a desert for his life. God meets him out of sheer mercy, and God invites him to stop and to listen and, and, and look and basically respond to God, but he's running for his life. He ends up 20 years with his uncle's house, and, and then he finally, after 20 years, comes back, and uh, God cripples him, and that was... Week number four, as we looked at Genesis 32, where he ends up with a limp, a dislocated hip for the rest of his life. And then last week, is we talked about the whole reconciliation, the issue of forgiveness, as he wrestles with cheap forgiveness with Esau, and uh, we call that moving from bad blood to good blood. And uh, so this week, I, I want us to, to uh, move to this theme, really, it's, I'm calling it journeying to, to everything is for me, and you'll see why it's called that in just a moment. Uh, and it kind of brings together the great themes of Jacob's life and uh, all of them together. So let's read, beginning in chapter 42, verse, I'm going to read, actually begin reading in verse 35. That's verse 36. It's up there ahead of you. Verse 35 of Genesis 42. Jacob is over 100 years old now, and his sons have just come and given a report that uh, the person in charge in Egypt is demanding that his youngest son, Benjamin, who is his favorite son, go back with the other brothers to Egypt. And uh, he gets this report. He's very distressed. And here's what it says. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. And when they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Verse 36. Their father Jacob said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. That's the key phrase. Everything is against me. Underline that in your Bible, all right? Everything is against me. Have you ever felt like everything was against you? It's like this, everything's against me. Everything's just going wrong. I mean, it's just on all, on all levels, big and small. I mean, everything from, you know, going to buy a bagel or going to the bank and you don't have a quarter for the meter and you pull a car over and you run into the bank and you realize they're out there giving tickets and you've got the stress of running in, you know, pushing the button on the, on the ATM machine and coming out, and you're saying, do I need this stress? It's, it's you know, it's 9.05 in the morning, and my day's just getting started. And uh, it can feel like everything's against me. And, and, uh, and uh, you know what it's like to go to work, and it feels like it's a war. Some of you work in the school system or for the city. You feel like everything's against me, or dealing with lawyers, or trying to rent an apartment. Some folks came to me at the first service, you know, trying to buy a house in Queens. You feel like everything is against me. Dealing with your credit card company, trying to get your insurance company to cover your doctor visits. I dealt with Verizon this week and, and a, a mattress company that I will leave unnamed. 
to take back a, a box spring that was faulty. And as they explained to me after about three to four hours on the phone, that not only would I, I would get a free mattress, but it would cost me two-thirds of what I paid for it for the uh, delivery fee. I said, but I don't understand, but you made the mistake and gave me a, a bad box spring. Why would I pay two-thirds of the price for delivery to get a, a new one? That's just the way it works. You know, we subcontracted with somebody else, complained to them. I said, who is them? Well, we don't know their names, you know? I said, okay. I said, everything is against me, you know? But I say it to myself, not in those words, but I feel it. Raising kids, everything is against me, you know? And some of us look at our families you grew up in, you know, and, all, and, and some of the scars you carry or some of the deficits or feel, you feel like you started out about 100 yards behind everybody else in the race of life. And maybe some of the traumas you've dealt with, maybe some of the addictions you're carrying, you're saying, you know, I'm trying to get off drugs, alcohol, sex, shopping, you name it. But it's like these things are chasing me down. They're pursuing me. It's like I'm, I'm trying to get my life together, but it's like everything is just against me. And I've got these, my own internal challenges. Some of you are single, and I hear all the time singles say, you know what, everything's against me. You should see the guys or the women I'm looking at. They, you know, everything's against me, and I'm trying to do right here. And some of you married folks say the same thing. You should meet my spouse. Everything is against me. And so we have all our disappointments, right, going for job interviews or going for promotions or getting into schools or grades, you name it, and you don't, you don't get it. Or you're in business and dealing with a competition. And I don't know anybody in any business that's not dealing with intense competition. And you just feel like it's one big fight that everything is against me, and especially when things don't go well. And I can go on and on. But sometimes I get what I, I like to call flooded. You know, it's kind of like my computer crashes. If you have a computer crash, you freak out. Like, where's my stuff? And, and, uh, and it's like the machine is jammed. I sometimes get jammed in life. It's like everything is against me. Everything seems to be going wrong at the same time. And everywhere I turn, little, big, in between, it's like I just get, I guess the word is crazy, you know, manic. And I, my wife generally runs away from me at that point and, uh, as anxiety hits in. That's where Joseph is. Joseph is flooded. He, he is maxed out. He, he's, he's gotten more bad news about his life. And uh, his response is just, he blames his kids. I like that. And, uh, and then he just declares, everything's against me. I mean, he has no sense of God at this point. All his theology, everything he believes, has just gone out the window. Now, if you were talking to jo Jacob, I think, and, he, and you say, Jacob, you know, don't, you know, God loves you, and he's for you. you know? I think he'd say something like this. At this moment, when he says, oh, everything's against me, you know what? You don't know my life. First of all, my father, Isaac, you know, was very emotionally distant from me. He favored my older twin brother, Esau, who was the firstborn. And you know what? He got all the blessings. I had to rob it from him to get something, you know, from, from it, you know. And, and, you know, he favored him. I got a blessing, but I had to basically lie to get it. And, you know, I had all this conflict with my older brother, Esau. You know, we, have, we didn't talk for 20 years. I had to run from my life, you know, and living in a desert. And my mother, she was overbearing. Rebecca, she smothered me. You know, I couldn't breathe with that woman down my neck, you know. And I lived with my uncle Laban, you know, out in this, you know, 500 miles away. And he was a cheat and a manipulative guy. And he was such a creep. He robbed me of my wages, you know. He was a bum. I, I thought I was going to marry one daughter. He snuck the other daughter in. I got two wives now, you know, not one. And, <laughs> And I got two concubines to boot because she couldn't get pregnant. You know, she was infertile and she was complaining. And, you know, everything was against me living with that guy for 20 years. I, I finally ran and came back home, you know. And on the way home, God dislocates my hip. How do you like that, you know, and <laughs> wrestling with an angel. And, and then, you know, I have all these kids. I got 13 kids. 
and uh, 12 sons. And one of my sons, the one I favored, I know I have favorites. Yes, I have favorites out of my favorite wife, you know, Joseph and Benjamin. I lost him. He's been dead, apparently, for 10, 11, 12 years. And, and I've been grieving that and carrying that all these years. And, and now I'm, I'm in the promised land, and we're starving to death. There's a famine. And so now we've got to go to Egypt. They're the only country with wealth and money. And, and now it looks like my other son, Simeon, he's gone. And now they want Benjamin, my other favorite son. And you know what? Everything's against me. Okay, God is for me. God's against me. And, and now I've got to probably leave home again and go to Egypt, another country. I don't want to go and lose everything. And uh, so I've had a hard life. And, uh, you know, from his perspective, I think Jacob is right. You know, he's had a hard life. Uh, be, part of it because, as we said a few weeks ago, the way of transgressors is hard. The way of the unfaithful is hard, Proverbs says. Life is hard, but when you go against God, it's even harder. And that's Jacob's experience here. And uh, so he's complaining he, he's lost it and he's got to pull up roots. But what he doesn't see is that everything, he thinks everything is against him. And many times we think everything's against us. What he doesn't get is everything is for him. At this moment, Everything is working for him in his life. He just can't see it. God is moving him to Egypt to save his life so they won't starve. Not only that, God's going to bless them when he gets there. And his son Joseph is alive and his family is going to be all back together. In fact, they're going to grow into be the people of Israel. And they're going to live for 400 years in Egypt. And they're going to become God's people and be a light to the nations. And yes, they're going to be delivered out of slavery by Moses, and, and they're going to have a whole history. They're going to bear the Messiah. People like us are going to be sitting in a room in the year 2007, all because God is moving him to Egypt. But he can't see that. All he knows is that this is terrible news. Everything's against me, and he's just complaining. He's flooded. He's lost God. The computer's crashed, and he's miserable. And so the reason this story of Jacob is so important is because I'm Jacob. You're Jacob. We're all Jacob. And, we're like, and so the question is, how do I journey to the truth, which is everything is for me? And it is a journey. That, that, is the, that is the heart of the Christian life. Now, as far as we know, Jacob was never joyful his whole earthly life. There's no record of him like in a good place. Uh, because when you're fighting God the whole time, it's hard to be really happy. You've got to get this place of everything is for me. So what I want to do is I'm going to, going to break this down into really three questions. And they're really profound questions that really summarize the themes of his life, of what made him such a manipulator and grabber and struggler. And I'm going to contrast him with his youngest son, uh, or younger son, Joseph, uh, who lived in Egypt. Because really, half the book of Genesis is really a contrast of Jacob and his son, Joseph. Now, what's interesting is that some of you know the story of Joseph. It's found in chapters 37 to, uh, to 50. But both Jacob and Joseph, Jacob the father and Joseph the son, both receive a great dream of being blessed, and it's given to them each as a gift. Both endure great difficulties at the hand of their siblings. Both spend the majority of their lives away from home. Both are deeply loved by God. Both have the hand of God upon them and a purpose under his sovereignty. And uh, both are engaged in really a purpose far beyond their simple lives. And, but yet the difference between father and son ends there. Jacob basically is a, I don't know how to say this nicely, he is a creep. And uh, as the father, uh, Joseph is a very godly son. I don't know how, how did a father like Jacob have such a godly son like Joseph? I don't know, but it gives me hope as a parent right here. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, if he could do, oh God, have mercy. 
But uh, here's the three things, all right? And we'll take it apart in this text and one other text, right? And the first is this. If I'm going to journey to the place where I'm able to say everything is for me, I'm not to say it, but really live it and breathe it, I've got to wrestle with this first question. Am I anxious and fearful or waiting and trusting? Now, let me ask you, how much anxiety are you carrying this morning? Just ang- you're anxious about things going on around you or relationships around you. Now, Jacob, as we read the text here in verse 35, when he hears this news that whoever's in charge of Egypt back there wants his son Benjamin, uh, he is just, the word here is usually he's frightened, he is anxious. Now, Jacob, remember, his name means, his very name means grabber or cheater, manipulative, striver, deceptive, he's aggressive, he's restless, he's seriously flawed. Really, not only would I not let Jacob be a small group leader at New Life, I'm not sure I'd trust him to take the offering or, or be an usher here uh, because the guy is just, he is, he's out of control. And, and so it, throughout his life, it doesn't look like God's going to bless him. It looks like everything's against him. So he's always, you know, again, he, treat, he cheats Esau out of that birthright in 25, and, and he steals the blessing and lies brazenly in chapter 27. And Jacob doesn't like when things are unpredictable in life. How about you? He hates it. He gets anxious. He gets fearful. He takes things in his own hands. And so whenever there's suffering in his life or things are slow with God, he basically says, I'll do it. I'll take care of it. And uh, he strives. Very different than Joseph, his son. Joseph is the exact opposite. You know, Joseph's able to say when everything's going bad, you know, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good you know, for the saving of many lives, chapter 50. And uh, Joseph had great uh, injustices done to him and horrific circumstances. He too, he was sold out as a slave. He ends up living in prison for 10 to 13 years. He's falsely accused of rape. I mean, if you know the story of Joseph, he had a terrible life. I mean, he gets, he gets forgotten in prison when he does good to the other inmates. I mean, but through it all, Joseph waits and trusts God. And, and uh, yes, he, you know, he, he watches his life unfold and and he gets to a place in life that Jacob could never strive to get to, and that is he becomes second in charge of e- in Egypt, Joseph. Uh, but he gets there by making good responses to God. What's so striking about Joseph, who's the opposite of Jacob, is when Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, meets Joseph, here's what Pharaoh says, who, who's a pagan. He says, can we find anyone like this, pointing to Joseph, one in whom is the Spirit of God? I mean, he just notices that here is Joseph, a man who, who has God inside of him. It's not his achievements that impresses Pharaoh. And, and, and so as Simone Weil, who was a famous French author, wrote, that the, the heart of a meaningful life is waiting expectantly for God. Now, a meaningful life for all of us is being in a place where we're waiting, but we're waiting expectantly. This thing of waiting is, you know, is underrated because it's such a big part of the Christian life. But you may be stuck today in your life. You may, you, may be, you may have people around you making bad choices, and it's impacting you. Or there may be some events spinning out of control around you that are bringing you pain. Maybe you've been falsely accused. Maybe you're at a wall. I don't know whether it's emotional or physical or relational, spiritual. But I want you to hear this. Because one of the messages of Genesis, when you think that everything's against you, God says, no, I want you to understand your life is not a bundle of accidents. 
But God says, I basically, I, I have been involved in your life since you were in your mother's womb. I knit you there, and I have had my hand watching over you every step of the way. And I gave you your family background, says the Lord, your educational background. I put you in the family you are, the culture you are, the, the country you were born in, your personality, your temperament, even the mistakes you made, I saw. And the Lord says, even the worst experiences you've had in life, I want you to know that by my power, I can turn to something good. And I don't know if you know it, but sometimes what appears to be a catastrophe becomes a strong foundation for a great life. And that what you think is a catastrophe is actually a whole new foundation for a whole new life from God. Sermons, I'll pick it up, I'll pick it up. Thanks. You know, Thomas Mann, some of you know, is a novelist, and he wrote this. It's possible to be in a plot or a story and not understand it. It's possible you're in, a, you're in your life right now, and you're in the middle of a plot that God's unfolding, but you just can't see what's going on at all. And uh, waiting and trusting is this, is this critical quality for a great Christian life. Now, there's unhealthy waiting, and there's healthy waiting. You know, unhealthy waiting is, oh, I'm, I'm praying for a job. You're not looking for a job, but you're waiting for a job, you know. And, and, uh, or, or I'm waiting on God, my, your boss or maybe your spouse or maybe some friends. You've got to speak some truth because a lot, there's, there's some things happening that are really sick, and you need to exert your power and assert yourself and speak truthfully. But rather than do that, because you don't like conflict, you don't want pain, and so you withdraw, and you basically said, I'm waiting on God. But that's unhealthy waiting. That's cowardice, and it's using the waiting on God in, in an unhealthy way. But, but waiting on God, because it's such a big theme we see in Abraham's life, he waits on God for a long time. Moses waits for the Israelites 40 years. Jesus waits tens of millions of years before coming to earth. God in the flesh to live and die for us. He waits 30 years before unveiling himself. But healthy waiting, you know what that is? That, that's, that's doing what you can do like Joseph. Joseph is, could not change his external situation. But he does take steps that are healthy steps when able. But his internal attitude is one of, I'm okay as I'm making steps to try to get out of the situation because I'm waiting and I'm trusting on God. But there is a healthy waiting. But I know one of the ways I know when I'm off, and I get off a lot, is when I have this oil light that goes on and it's called anxiety. And I just find myself you know, freaking out. I, I am anxious and I'm fearful. And then I start getting manic and I, I start trying, I work triple time. And um, some of us, you know, your anxiety leads to anger or blaming, or maybe you withdraw, you get resentful, you get depressed. I don't know how it manifests for you, but I know anxiety is usually the way it starts. Fear breaks in and then it's like, God who? All I know is everything's against me. I got to take control of the situation. So I don't know what you're like, but you know, I've got goals for certain areas of my life and things I want to accomplish, and that's a good thing to have, goals and objectives for your life. And, but there's a way to approach them as you make plans with an open hand and you bring to God decisions. And, and I know I'm off track when I get crazy about my goals. I'm like, okay, God, this has got to get done. And I throw out my rhythms. I don't rest anymore. I don't sleep properly. I don't engage in my Sabbaths because I'm so anxious. I've got to get this done that um, I end up not respecting my other callings from God in terms of being a father and a husband and my limits as a human being. And uh, so part of my oil light not going on, and sometimes I tell you, I'm anxious. I say, God, let the engine blow, but we're going to go and get this thing solved. 
because I'm fearful everything's against me. I don't know where you are, God, or what you're doing. But listen, God crippled Jacob. Remember that. To get him to wait and to trust. And he dislocated his hip and he forever walked with a limp. And God says to you, you know what? We all have our dislocated hips, don't we? We talked about a couple of weeks ago. And God says, you don't understand, Pete. You don't understand, you know, Joe and Susie and Harry. Your setbacks, your hardships, and your limps, the Lord says, they're me. Because my goal is to transform you, that you would really understand that everything is for you. And that you would become a person who truly waits and trusts like Joseph and be approachable and gentle and humble, and one in whom the Spirit of God rests. So let me ask you, are you anxious about your life today and fearful? Or are you waiting on God and trustful? It's one of the first, it's the first of three major themes for Jacob. But a second is related, and that's this. Am I living lies or in truth? Am I living lies or in truth? There's another huge theme of Jacob's life. His, again, his name means liar. And that lying is so much a part of him, uh, it's almost, he comes out of him like breath. And go with me to chapter 33 of Genesis, which is the passage we did last week, and I want to finish the passage. Because here's Jacob, and we see him after being with Esau and having kind of a cheap forgiveness exchange. And Esau, his older brother, who is not a Christian, he was pagan, he, you know, he's into other gods, and is trying to, to really reconcile with uh, Jacob. And he says, Jacob, let's live together. Come with me back home. Jacob's response in verse 13 is he begins again lying. And we see him saying, verse 13 in chapter 33 of Genesis, oh, and he lies. He goes, my Lord knows that the children are tender and I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. Well, that's a lie. Okay, he's lying, lying, lying. And then he says, you go first, verse 14, I'm going to move slowly, but you go back home to your home in Seir, and I'll meet you there later. And Esau says, well, let me leave some of my men with you, in verse 15. And Jacob says, no, nah, no, nah, don't do that. I'll meet you back home. You just go. And so verse 16, so that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Sakath, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Sakath. And after Jacob came from Padam Aram, he arrived safely in the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. Now, he goes to Shechem. So he lies to Esau again, and he doesn't go back to his home. He ends up in this other city 20 miles away in the opposite direction in Shechem. Now, Jacob spent so much of his life lying and spinning the truth. Again, there's no record of him enjoying his life but really, it's like he, you don't see him even telling the truth very often. How many of us, we have a dream of something to come true? And to get that dream to happen, we end up bending the truth. We flatter people. We explain away our failures. We say yes to things, but we really mean no. We pretend to be something we're not. We hide over our flaws and wounds and vulnerabilities, although that's part of our identity as human beings, and we pretend we're something we're not, and, and we spin. And so we end up lying in families and friendships and churches and ministries and workplaces and marriages, and we try to build the kingdom of God with lies. And as we talked earlier, it can't be done. And, and so some of us 
We, our lives are one big web of lies, spins or half-truths, and, and just to get ahead, just to save face, just to bolster a false self, and, and that's Jacob's life of living lies, and so he never journeys to a place where everything is for me. He's too afraid. He's too anxious that God might not be for me, and so he's got to take control by spinning truth, and he lives lies. Now, Joseph, his son, ah, oh, what a son. Joseph's got integrity. Joseph lives in truth, even though there's short-term consequences. He ends up in prison for a longer period of time, but he's willing to pay the short-term price to live in truth, to get to a place where Joseph knows everything is for him, because there are consequences to being honest. Have you found that to be true? To be truthful to yourself, to others, those around you, and to God, friends, there's often short-term consequences. Jacob does not want short-term pain. So he lies. I know I struggle. I struggle with embracing truth. I do. Uh, it's painful, and I don't like pain. I don't like conflict, and Jacob doesn't like conflict. And, and uh, sometimes I'd rather do anything than embrace the hard truth around me. And so I'll, I'd rather appease or exaggerate or overcompensate. But remember that series we did a couple of years ago on true peacemaking? You can't have true peace without conflict. False peacemaking appeases, covers over, and spins. True peacemaking, like Jesus, engages conflict and speaks truth and lives it. But it's a battle. Jacob doesn't do truth here. You know what happens? He goes to Shechem. He lives there for 10 years. And because he disobeys God and lies again here, his family goes into a mess. His daughter ends up getting raped. His two sons end up killing every, in revenge, kill every male living in the city of Shechem. And Jacob has to flee from Shechem 10 years later because he's a stench to the peoples. But there's consequences that come into Jacob's life because he will not live truth. And chapter 34 lays them all out. That's actually a scary chapter because it's all what happens to his life. So, you know, Martin Luther King wrote a great quote about truth in uh, the year before he died in uh, 1967 and about the challenge to live truth versus lies. Here's what Martin Luther King wrote. You may be 38 years old, as I happen to be, and one day some great opportunity stands before you and calls you to stand up for some great principle, some great issue, some great cause, and you refuse to do it because you are afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You're afraid that you will lose your job or you're afraid that you will be criticized, or that you will lose your popularity, or you're afraid that somebody will stab you, or shoot at you, or bomb your house. So you refuse to take a stand. Well, you may go on and live until you're 90, but you're just as dead at 38 as you would be at 90. And when you stop breathing at the end of your life, that will simply be the announcement of an earlier death of your spirit. So I invite you this week to do something, a little test. Pay attention to your relationships this week and see how you portray yourself. Are you polite? How are you in those conversations? Are you spinning half-truths? Or are you genuinely truthful? Okay, so this is that second critical question of journeying to a place where, wow, everything is for me. Are you living lies or living truth? 
But there's one more. That's another great theme of Jacob's life, and that's this. Am I distracted or focused? You know, rabbis have written many, many great commentaries on Jacob's life because he is the father. All Israel flows out of Jacob. And Jacob did a lot of bad things in his life. What's interesting is that most rabbis are most, they, they criticize him most severely for this incidence of going to Shechem because he had made a vow 20-plus years earlier that he would come back to Bethel. That's where God had met him with the stairway to heaven. And he made a vow, I will return to this place, Lord, to live and be with you. So now it's 20-plus years later, he's coming back, and he gets distracted. And instead of going to, to Bethel, he ends up at Shechem for 10 years. He's unfocused. And then all these calamities happen, his daughter getting raped, and his son's committing this terrific crime, and, and he reaps what he sows. And the reason these rabbis spoke so harshly of, of Jacob in this is because he'd made a promise to God that he would do something. It's like Jonah going to Nineveh. The Lord comes back to him a second time and says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Well, after, in chapter 35, God says, okay, Jacob, you've messed up again. Go to Bethel. And so you see, my question to you is, is you know, his life is a mess. Are you distracted in your relationship with God? Are you wandering very easily, especially when things go wrong? Or are you able to stay focused much like Joseph? You see, a few bad circumstances, and Jacob's off track again. Just like many of us. My friend quits Christ. I'm not going to church anymore. I'm discouraged. I quit. And uh, we underestimate the power of the beast, the world around us, and we underestimate our own internal sin to pull us away. But some of us in this room, we have wandered from God. We've pulled away, and you know what's happened? We're now reaping a big mess. I had a few people come to me at the first service, and oh my goodness, Pastor Pete, I am unfocused. I, I got distracted. You know what? I'm living it now, just like Jacob is here. But see, what Jacob doesn't get is this. We're called. If you've given your life to Christ, you, God's, he has called you and summoned you by name. The word, you have a vocation. The word vocation means called. Now, we think, oh, I got a job. I work as a dentist, a social worker, a teacher. No, 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 no. Your, 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 our calling is to God. The average North American moves four to five times every, I'm sorry, moves every four to five years. Think of that. The average person in this room, you're going to move in four to five years from now. But it's not where you go or even what you do as a profession. The issue of calling is your vocation is to someone. You are called to a person that is the living God. And so when you say, you know, people identify themselves as their job. I'm a teacher. I'm a dentist. I'm a social worker. I'm, I'm just a mom at home. That's a horrible thing to say. You know, I'm a, I'm a student. And if you're called, you're a missionary or you're a pastor. I mean, that's just like horrifically unbiblical. And we take tests to find out our vocation or jobs. No, no, the Bible sees it very differently. God says, I chose you. Your vocation is to me, to someone, to follow me. Then out of that, you do other things. I've got a plan for your life. But your calling is to God. Regardless of what you do and where you live, we all have the same calling. It is to seek him. That's why I love uh, Psalm 27.4 of David. This to me is, uh, regardless of your job, Regardless of your place in life right now, we, like David, say we all have the same vocation. It is to him. As David says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty and to seek him in his temple. You have an incredible calling in your life. God's chosen you, and you know what? 
Your calling is the same as mine. It's to him. So, as you look at these three questions, you say, wow, Jacob was a mess, and so am I. But every time you hear the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I want you to, don't think the fact that these Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were great Christians. They were, Jacob, what a terrible role model. Why does the Bible put this guy and give him so, many, so much footage in Scripture, and why is it always referred to as the God of Jacob? And uh, not because they're great models. Jacob is a bad model. It's because of their human failings and weaknesses. Jacob is anxious, he's a liar, and he's distracted. The reason he's in God is the sheer mercy and grace of God. That's the point. You're Jacob. The God of... If he can be the God of Jacob, he can be the God of Pete Scazzaro. He can be the God of Leonore and Susie and the God of you and the God of me. We're all Jacobs. But it's God in his sheer mercy who calls you and comes after you and loves you and pulls you to himself. And the emphasis is the fact that God develops his people out of all Jacobs. We're a community of Jacobs and limpers. We all limp. But it's God's grace and God's mercy, friends, that keeps us here. So every time you read about, oh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you say, oh, yes, even me. He's the God of Peter. I'm anxious, I'm fearful, I lie, I get distracted, and he still pursues me and loves me and brings me in his family. And that's why Romans 8, Paul captures the whole life of Jacob in this verse in Romans 8, of the journey to saying everything is for me. And here's Paul. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Let me ask you are, you, are you in Jesus Christ today? Do you know him? If you don't know him, at the end of this service, you want to surrender your life to Christ. Ask for forgiveness. Ask him to adopt you and your family. Cross a line. Become a Christian. Because a great promise here, God says, no, everything's not against you. Everything is for you. All things work together for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us. You see, you're able to sit down and, when everything's going wrong and say, wow, everything is for me. I can't see it. It looks awful, but everything is for me. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul's saying, don't you get it? If God came and died for you, isn't he going to provide for you graciously everything you need? What are you worried about? What are you anxious about? Why do you have to lie? Why are you getting yourself distracted? Relax, be still, rest in me, trust in me, wait on me. Because he says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, it can feel like everything has separated me from the love of Christ, even my own sins. And Paul gives his list, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. And you can add to that list. What's going to separate you from the love of Christ? that's beaming in on you, that's got you. And then Paul writes, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord.
I invite you to memorize and meditate on this text. Let it go into you. But I'm in a bad place, and I, I had a, a day or two this week, I was flooded. I was in a bad place. And I know, here I am, I'm preaching this sermon. I knew what I was preaching on, you know, from a week ago. And I know, and here I am, I'm like, everything is, I felt like, God, you're, everything's against me. And I, and I really, I felt that way, even though I knew in my head. And so, yes, I need friends at that point. I mean, I thank God I was with Jerry. I need people to pray for me, to carry me, to help me keep focused. I need wise counsel. And, and I, I needed to get alone, to get still, to get, because I just can't see straight at that point. And I finally got to this passage. I was like, oh. And once I just started, once again, just meditating and letting it sink in, God just began to like, yes, the big picture, the focus. Yes, Pete, I'm for you. Everything is for you. I am good, the Lord says, and my love endures forever. So we hit three big themes. And Jacob did not realize that everything is for him. And you may not realize it either today. But what I want to do is I'm going to ask you, there's these three great questions here, and I'm going to ask you to pick one because they're all so huge. And then I'm going to give you a couple of minutes of silence and solitude before God. And I want to ask you, which of these three questions do you most connect with today? Now, don't say all three. I know you may connect with all three. Say, I'm anxious, I'm a liar, and I'm distracted. Okay, okay. But <laughs> ask yourself, which is the one that how God's coming to you this morning and which most resonates with where you are. So it may be the first one. You know, am I anxious and fearful or waiting and trusting? So in other words, I'm gonna, so I'm gonna pay attention, Lord, to when things aren't going well and Lord, help me to remember you and relax and be still internally. Or maybe your second one is, am I lying or living in truth? I had someone come to me at the second service and say, Pete, my whole life is lies. Out of fear, I just, I don't, I can't imagine getting into truth. And that may be yours. And so maybe you're going to start paying attention to your words and your tendency to be silent when you should speak or speak when you should be silent and your exaggerations. And thirdly, am I distracted or focused? And maybe you're realizing that you've let your relationship with God happen to you. And you're not initiating and you've let yourself wander we talk a lot about a rule of life here. You don't have a rule of life, of a trellis of how you order your following of Jesus. And so you easily, when things difficult come into your life, you get distracted. And that may be you this morning. So I want you to pick one of those three. Ask the Lord, which one is most applicable to me? And I'd like to ask you to begin by speaking to God. Pour out your soul before the Lord. Trust in him at all times, Psalm 62. Say, Lord, I'm just fearful and anxious about that. I'm so off track. Uh, and then I want you to be quiet and listen to him. Listen. What's the will of God for your life? Jesus, out of the Mount of Transfiguration, God said, listen to him, Jesus. Listen. All right, so I'll be the timekeeper. I'd like to invite you just to close your eyes and you may want to look back at these questions. And which of the three is most significant for you today. Now is God speaking to you. Let's begin. So Lord, guide us together that we as a people would live out our new name 
that everything is for us and not against us. In Jesus' name, amen. Worship team, come forward and please stand, everyone. And Michael, if you could put those words up to that song, that would be great. And I asked Yousef and the worship team, they could lead us in a song that you know well, that is grace is enough. And the words really are the, the story of Jacob's life. Again, you look around the room here. I mean, this is God's people. We're all Jacobs, the whole bunch of us. And yet, this is the raw material that God associates himself with imperfect people. But it's about God's faithfulness. You look at the words, great is your faithfulness, O God of Jacob. Now, I'm a great lover of the Psalms, as you know, but over and over and over again, great is your faithfulness, O God. O God of Jacob, you wrestle with the sinner's restless heart. Isn't that us? That's our God. You lead us by still waters into mercy, and nothing can keep us apart. Next verse, Mike. Great is your love and justice, God. You use the weak to lead the strong, and we're weak. You lead us in the song of your salvation, and all your people sing along. Next verse, Mike. Then it goes, you know, so remember your people. Remember your children. Remember your promise, O God. And it goes, your grace is enough. Lord, it's your grace. That's it, friends. And so we want to surrender ourselves. You know, Jacob was given a new name, Israel. But he kept going back to living Jacob. You'll notice it goes back and forth. They call him Jacob. They call him Israel. Like us, we have a new name. We're Christian, but we, we live the old life. But God's calling us to really enter into our new name as Christian, to live a new life and put the old behind us because we're now the people of God and everything really is for us. And so we're to enter into that inheritance and give it as a gift to all those around us and be a blessing. You know what? It's a better way to live. So I invite you to sing with me. It's back to, you know, glad your grace is enough and you're faithful. So let's sing it together. <laughs>